0: The text before us today is Mark eleven twelve 12 to 26. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes What they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the gospel of the Lord. So we're into the last movement of Mark's gospel, As we've been going through the entire gospel this year, we've seen that Mark basically breaks into three pieces. The first section being Jesus is the Messiah. The second being this is what discipleship of that Messiah looks like. And the last being now, Jesus pulling it off for us in what is commonly known as Holy Week. This week that starts with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter. And this is pretty logical. Maybe you can see the logic in it. Here is Jesus. Here's who he is. This is how you should follow him, but if you've been with us through that section, you know that the main message is you won't be able to. So, Jesus is going to have to do it for you. And so in this last movement, this last section of Mark, we're gonna see Jesus once again pulling it off for us, being everything that we need to be, breaking down all of our idols and making sure that we worship him and him alone. Um, To give us a little bit of context, we skipped the Palm Sunday section that would normally have been the next text that we would have read in our progression through Mark. We did that because we studied that text back in spring when the church celebrates Palm Sunday. So time-wise, we are uh, in Palm Sunday, or right about there, uh, just after Jesus has come into Jerusalem on a donkey, if you remember that story. So... I want to move through each one of the three pieces of this text today and give you just what the text says, and then I want to back up and give us um, kind of some bigger applications of the text as a whole. You can see those three portions as you read through it. You have this interaction with the fig tree, then you have Jesus driving out people from the temple, and then finally you have this section where he talks about prayer and prayer that moves mountains and that sort of thing. So we'll walk through each of those sections and see what they have to say. The uh, the section on Jesus driving uh, people out from the temple is part of yet another Markan sandwich. Uh, The sandwich here is the the fig tree at the beginning of the text leads into Jesus in the temple and it ends with the withered fig tree. And so we have to first of all just notice as we study the first two pieces of this, their interrelation. Uh, that they are playing off each other and they're trying to build a larger message for us. So just keep that in mind as we work through each of these parts. Um, First, let's work through the section of him driving people out of the temple courts, and then we'll back up to the fig tree. Um, The text tells us that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So for a little bit of context If you were an Old Testament Christian, part of your worship life was coming to the temple to make sacrifices multiple times a year, but especially at this point, which was just about to be the celebration of Passover. Now, that was an easy thing if you lived in or around Jerusalem, but you have to remember at this point, the nation of Israel was spread out quite a ways. And so if you lived a multiple days journey away from Jerusalem, it was already a difficult thing to get to Jerusalem. And then you had to bring along animals for sacrifices as well, which made it even more difficult. And so a system was put in place so that if you lived far away, you could come by yourself to Jerusalem and you could buy necessary animals for your sacrifices with your money and you could sacrifice them there. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this system. In fact, it's pretty ingenious. You're making the same idea of a sacrifice, just money to. Get an animal in order to do the sacrifices but jesus obviously doesn't like this right and you can see he overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and won't let anybody carry merchandise through the temple courts so if there's nothing inherently wrong with the system why is jesus so angry well the answer i think is in what he says he gives us two quotes two quotes from the old testament first from the book of Isaiah, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations and then the den of robbers reference which comes from the Jeremiah text that we read earlier in the service. So in order to understand why Jesus is so ticked off at what's going on in the temple, we have to go back to those quotes and understand why he quotes them. Now the first thing to understand about quotes in the first century is that they were not used the same way that we use quotes today. So today, if you're writing a piece of literature and you quote another author, you're going to quote exactly the words that you want your reader to know. So if that's you know, multiple paragraphs or that's just one sentence, you're going to quote the entire work that you want people to know. Um, in, in that time, they had a thing that they called metalepsis. And part of it had to do with just the availability of parchment and how much paper you could write on. But what they would do is they would quote a small portion of a text and expect that you would know the larger context of that short quote that they would give. So it seems that Jesus is doing this in this case as well. You don't need to know what metalepsis is, but you do need to understand that when he quotes a den of robbers, for example, he's expecting you to go back and understand all of what's going on in Jeremiah 7 and 8. Or when he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, he expects you to know all of what's going on in Isaiah 56. And maybe just as an aside, we have this thing that our culture thinks that we modern people were way smarter than all those ancient people. But can you see the brilliance in this? Like as people who today read quotes that are totally taken out of context, their assumption was that if I quote somebody, you should go look at the context. Turns out they were pretty sharp. So let's go back and look at the context. Uh, Jesus says that you have made the temple into a den of robbers. So what is he referencing? Well, that whole long section from Jeremiah, right? And what was Jeremiah saying? Jeremiah was saying, look, you have this temple that you guys worship at, and you're treating it as, well, a given. That it's just always going to be here no matter how you live. If you're oppressing the poor, you're taking advantage of the widow and the orphan, you're living in sexual immorality, or you are worshiping other gods, you're making sacrifices to gods that you do not know. And yet you continue to just think, I'm just going to leave my temple here as some sort of blank check for you, that I'm always going to leave my power on you when you don't care about me and what I say one bit. And so, what does Jeremiah say? He says, The temple is going to be destroyed. I'm going to take away my temple. I'm going to push you out of this land because you don't care about what I say anymore. And your preachers are no better, right? He says, the priests and the prophets, they say, Peace, peace, everything's good. And it's not good. They say, You know what? You're doing okay. It's not that bad. God isn't that angry with you. When God really is against your sin. It turns out this really happened. In 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and drove God's people out into exile. And so when Jesus says this, quote, the den of robbers, quote, essentially what he's saying is because of the behavior that I see here in this temple, behavior that simply does not care that God is in this place or that God is speaking, but is licentious, is giving in to every sensuality is doing whatever we want without care for what God says, I am going to destroy this temple. And it turns out he did. In 70 AD, about 40 years after these words were spoken, the Romans completely destroyed the temple. And it has not been rebuilt to this day. Okay, so that's the first quote. The second is, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is a quote from Isaiah 56, which I'm not going to read to you right now, but for your context, the the chapter is about how if you're a Gentile, if you're not born into the nation of Israel, if you are willing to hear God's word and you are willing to repent and you are willing to devote yourself to the true God, you are just as much part of the nation of Israel as somebody who was born into it. So why does Jesus quote this text here? Well, to understand that, I think you need to understand a little bit about the temple at that time. This is a model of what the temple would have looked like at Jesus' time because, well, it was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, So that big building that you can see, that is the temple itself. You can see a smaller court that has two portions to it and then a larger court that is all around the temple. Um, That larger court was called the Court of the Gentiles. And uh, while we might think to ourselves, okay, so there was a court for the Gentiles that was a little bit farther away from the temple and the Jews could be closer to the temple, that seems kind of, well, maybe racist would be a term that we would use nowadays. We have to understand that actually having a court for the Gentiles in the temple of a God who was associated with the, the Israelites was a radical thing. The idea that you would welcome in people from another ethnicity to worship with you has been and still kind of is a rare thing to find. I know I've said this before, Christianity continues to be the most, most ethnically inclusive religion, by far the most widely spread over ethnicities. Every other world religion tends to fall with one um, ethnicity or race. So it's actually a beautiful thing. God said, here's a court for you. Even if you're not biologically part of my nation, you can still come and you can still worship because my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Okay, so why is Jesus saying this here? Well, we know from history that Caiaphas, the high priest at this time, had taken that system that I had described about buying animals for sacrifice and he had hijacked it. He had taken it and changed it, where instead of coming from whatever Roman province you were coming from and paying for your animals and taking them to the sacrifice, you actually had to bring your money from your Roman province, wherever you were from, and you had to exchange it for the temple shekel, which was a currency that was only used in the temple to buy sacrifices. And if any of you have ever done currency exchange, you know that you generally don't come out in the black on those currency exchanges. And it was even worse here. Um, Some scholars say it was up to 15 times uh, what uh, the cost was actually to get that temple shekel. Where were these tables set up that Caiaphas uh, set up? They were set up in the court of the Gentiles. So what was happening? God had set up his worship to be a place where all nations could come and worship him. And his people, the Jews, were gouging all those nations because they weren't, well, as much like them as their fellow brothers and sisters. So Jesus comes in and he sees all this happening and he turns over the tables. He drives out everyone. Maybe you can see why. But you know, I've read this text hundreds of times in my life. And this time, reading through it and studying it, I noticed something I'd never noticed before. And it was back in verse 15. It says that Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling. I think when I've read this before, I've always thought, like, imagine in my mind, Jesus comes in, and he turns over the tables, and he's pushing the sellers out, and, and at the end of it, there's like a great cheer, because all the poor people who came to worship God, they're all there, and, and now all those baddies are out. But that's not what the text says. The text says Jesus drove out not just those who were selling, but also those who were buying. So Why? I think it's easy to figure out why he was driving out those who were selling, right? They're they're taking advantage of people who are there to worship for their own gain. But the buyers, I think, are interesting. And I think the answer to why Jesus drove them out as well is also embedded in what he says. He said that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about what prayer is later in the sermon. But... The basic idea is that God set up his worship place to be a place of communion with him, where God's people could come and speak his words back to him, where they could receive his gifts and respond in thankfulness. But what had the temple become, even for those who were there worshiping? It had become a place of transaction, a place where I brought my money to do my religious actions because this is what we do every year, There was no heart in their worship. They were simply going through the machinations of what it means to be a relatively religious person. And nobody of them stood back and said, you know what? This isn't what God's house is supposed to be. People aren't supposed to be gouging one another for money in order to just go through some religious processes. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. And so not only were the sellers guilty, But so were the buyers. And so Jesus drove them all out. So here's my question for you Are there buyers and sellers today in the church? It might be easy to identify some of the sellers, those who use the church for their own advantage. I think we can all think of a stereotypical televangelist who says something like, you need to sow a seed of financial investment in my ministry. And if you do that, God will bless you with prosperity. And frankly, friends, that's a demonic lie. They're just trying to get your money. And certainly that is what is in view here. Those, Those are sellers. But I wonder if there's a more subtle form of it that shows up even in the lives of those of us who have not tried to gouge people in the church for money. Have we ever used the church to our own advantage? Let me give you a couple examples of how this might work. What if you come to church in order to make yourself feel good? Like because I come to church and because I put some money in the plate, because I'm here relatively often, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. I'm more faithful than most. What are you doing? You're using church, this gathering, To feed your ego. Or what about if you're somebody, and I find this more often with people who come from a church background earlier in their life, who says, you know what, I wish our church did this thing or this thing or this thing because that's what we used to do at my church when I was growing up and I, I really liked that. Now I'm not saying those things are wrong. In fact, in many cases, there's a lot of value in those things. But do you see what you're doing? You're trying to use the church to feed your nostalgia? Or what if you're somebody who comes to church and you're really respected here, or you're liked here? People listen to you, people acknowledge you. Isn't it easy, very quickly, to fall into the pitfall of, well, I wanna to go to church because other people like me there. I fit in there. I belong there. And it's not that you shouldn't have friends, and it's not that you shouldn't feel like you belong, but we use church. We use it to fulfill a whole bunch of other feelings of wants that we have in our life that aren't what church is for. What about buyers? Anyone who comes into God's house with a transactional mindset. Because I'm here, I deserve something from God. Because I'm a relatively good person, because I raised my family in the faith. I deserve something from God. Or those who simply go through the motions, who just go through these practices because they seem like good religious practices, but there's no heart of repentance from them that says, "I need to be here, not just because my religion says I should be here, but because I have no hope except to lay my face in front of my God and say, "Lord, have mercy on me." Or the buyers, not the cultural Christians, who see church as something that's well, it's good, it might help you out. Feel need in your life, but, but it's not the worship of the Almighty God who shows mercy on us. Could that be the case for us? Are there buyers and sellers among us? If Jesus were to come in here today and he could read every heart, which, by the way, he does, even though he's not standing right here, what would he say about us? Would he drive us out of his house? Would he say to us, you've made this into a den of robbers? You've Turn my house away from being a house of prayer into a house of transaction? Every one of us ought to examine our hearts and ask ourselves that question. Now hopefully, as we study that, you're starting to bring the episode with the figs into a little bit more clarity. Because if you read that text, you think to yourself, like, what on earth is going on? It's not even the season for figs. He goes to this fig tree, he curses it, comes back, gets withered, and then doesn't even answer Peter when Peter says, hey, Peter, or Peter says to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, look, your your fig plant withered. Jesus just goes off in another direction. But maybe you're starting to understand it, right? In the book of Micah, chapter 7, God is talking about this same instance that Jeremiah is talking about with Judah and and the temple, and here's what he says. He says, What misery is mine, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. So he sets up this metaphor. He says, I, God, am like someone who goes to a fig tree and doesn't find any fruit on it. Why? Because the faithful have been swept away from the land. Not one upright person remains. You starting to see this? Then go back to that text from Jeremiah that we read, Jeremiah 8.13. God says, I will take away their harvest. There will be no grapes in the vine, there will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. The fig tree was a picture of Jerusalem. A picture pulled from those Old Testament texts. Jesus says very clearly, I went to Jerusalem and like a fig tree with green leaves, it looked alive. There was a lot of religious activity. There was an electric atmosphere. There were lots of people, but... I didn't find any fruit. And so Jesus withers the fig tree and says, Never again will you produce fruit. And that's what happened. The temple was destroyed, and the temple will never be rebuilt. And by the way, while we're on the topic, just because sometimes people say this, there's a a false teaching out there that the temple needs to be rebuilt that in order for God to come back, for Jesus to come back, the temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem? That's a lie. So if you hear somebody say that, Jesus says right here, this fig tree, Jerusalem, this temple, will never bear fruit again. It's not coming back. Jesus will come back, but not to a temple. Because like we read in another version of this story from another one of the gospel writers, Jesus says, my body is the temple. You want the temple? You got it when you took the Lord's Supper today. The temple's not a building in the Middle East. The temple is Jesus. So Jesus goes to this fig tree. He doesn't find the fruit, and it's a picture of Jerusalem. So what was the fruit that Jesus was looking for? As he went into the temple, was he, was he looking for maybe the fruit of the Spirit? I think that's maybe the easiest jump for us. He was looking for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I'm um, certainly... He was looking for those things. But I think he was looking for something even more foundational, more primary, when it comes to the fruits of what God's work in our heart produces. And guess what, it's right from the scriptures. The Psalms, in fact. He says, you do not delight, this is David talking to God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In other words, it's not about the processes of religious practice. He says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So, what fruit does God desire? What fruit was Jesus looking for in Jerusalem? What fruit does he look for in our lives? Repentance. To be willing to say, My sin is so great that I acknowledge that nothing but the death of the Son of God is sufficient to pay for it, but that has happened. Jesus died on the cross. That means it is paid. And I will throw myself down at the mercy of that God. That's repentance. Being a Christian is not about going to church, not about putting something in the plate, not even about prayer or many of the things we associate with with Christianity. It's about repentance, first and foremost. Okay, so Jesus withers this fig tree Peter says to him, Rabbi, check it out, the fig tree that you cursed, it withered. And then Jesus answers with this. He says, have faith in God. Okay. He continues, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay, so let's walk through this, because I think it's a little bit easy to get off track as you read these words. First of all, Jesus says, have faith in God. Why would he say that right now? Well, think about what is faith always in opposition to? Think of it like this, we are saved by faith, not by works, right, So Jesus is saying, I went to that temple and all I saw were works. I saw empty religion, practices that had no heart in them. So what I am telling you is that that will wither. That is going away. But what I call from you is faith. Trust in my words. He then continues, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, it will be done for them. notice first of all, he doesn't say, truly I tell you if anyone says to a mountain or any mountain, he says this mountain. What mountain is he talking about? Jerusalem. He's saying if anyone says about Jerusalem that that mountain should go into the heart of the sea, which if you remembered, for the Jews, sea was the picture of chaos, it was the picture of hell, it was the place of destruction, so, so Jesus is saying, if anyone would say about Jerusalem that it should be thrown into, a, into destruction and you do not doubt that, which misleads us because we think of doubt and we think of like, ooh, I'm not really sure, but that's not what the word means. The word means to, to distinguish or to separate. And so what Jesus is saying is, if anyone would say about this mountain, Jerusalem, go be thrown into destruction and, and only say that because that's what I just said when I withered this fig tree, then it will be done. Why? Because I said so. And so if you say what I say, it's going to happen because I'm God. And so he says, then therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, not will receive it, have received it. In other words, Jesus says, I have spoken, I have said all these things for you and for your knowledge and for your blessing and for your salvation. They are all already true because I said them and I am God. So when you pray, just ask for the things that I've already said are yours and you will already have received it. It's yours. It does not that flip our North American idea of prayer on its head. Like North Americans tend to think prayer is I go to God and I ask God for stuff please God give me a Lamborghini or something like this. The Bible says that is not prayer. That is a Hallmark movie. Biblical prayer is God says something, we say it back to God. We hold God to his promises. The best place, of course, to do this is in the Psalms, right? Those 150 prayers that God gave you and said, these are perfect prayers. Pray these things back to me. That's why we do it every Sunday. He then finishes with this last thought, so if you stand praying and if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Which, I'll just make a quick quick application, means if you are holding a grudge against anyone else, you're not forgiven. That may be hard to hear, but that's what it says. I'm just the messenger. A person who understands what God did for him or her who understands the lengths to which God was willing to suffer, was willing to disadvantage himself, was willing to make himself uncomfortable for every one of us sinners. If you understand that there is no way you can hold a grudge against another person who sins against you. Period. So Jesus says, if you hold anything against anyone, ask for forgiveness. Because that is a sin that, that God says if if you hold on to it, it is not forgiven and you are not saved. One application of this, by the way, just so you can see how this plays out, is uh, if I know as a pastor that somebody is holding a grudge against someone else and they come to the Lord's Supper, I won't serve them because they're not repentant. And the Lord's Supper is not a a blank check where you can sin and hold grudges and do all these things that Jeremiah listed and just hope that God's going to keep forgiving you. God desires repentance. Okay, so what's Jesus' point? He says, know the word so that you can pray the word. Because that building, that temple, that religious practice, that is going away. What matters now is what I say. And will you believe it? Will you hold on to it? Will you repeat it back to me? Then all of these things will be done for you. If you want to go off in your own way and do whatever you want, that's fine. But don't expect me to be your God. And if that sounds a little bit harsh, imagine how all those people in the temple felt that day. And then remember, remember, that that was God who went into that temple that day and said those things. Okay, so let's make a couple applications. I think two come to mind that I think are important for us. Bigger applications of this section. Jesus says in the text, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And now, of course, we know that that house of prayer is no longer a spot in the Middle East, but it is where Jesus dwells, where his word is preached, where his sacraments are administered. So in a sense, this place, as God's word is preached and his sacraments are administered, this is God's house prayer, which he says is for all nations. In their context, that meant Jew and Gentile, right? The court of the Gentiles, the court for the Jews. But for them, that separation was less about ethnicity And it was more about what they thought of as uncleanness. Like for them, it wasn't so bad that you'd be around a Gentile necessarily. I mean, they let Gentiles basically into their worship space. It was the idea that being close to a Gentile would give you this uncleanness, this ceremonially unclean feeling. I wonder if there's an application for us. Could there be a group of people in our society today that we would look at as unclean It's not that we don't want them around, but we don't really want to get too close to them. Because if we get too close to them, something bad might happen. They can still come to our worship services, they can still come to our events, but maybe we'd stay a little bit away from them, keep them in their area. Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And I'm being purposely vague, but just think about that. Secondly, we can't take God's house for granted. Twice, God has spoken his word to his people. His people have forgotten about his word and he has destroyed their place of worship. What makes you think he's not going to do it again? Do you want a place for your kids and your grandkids and the people that you love to worship in this city? Let's know the word. And let's live by that word in daily sorrow and repentance over our sins, looking to Jesus for our forgiveness. Because friends, if we sleep around and drink and and use drugs and speak and, and, and live licentious lifestyles like the rest of the world, if we worship the TV or whatever is on our phone, if we can't be bothered to take care of the poor and the widow and the orphan, why wouldn't God do the same thing to us? So know his word, pray his word, live his word. And in that, I think, maybe to to push this home for us, this story is sort of meta. You know what the term meta means? I feel like maybe people only my age and younger know what meta means. If you're older than me and you know that, congratulations, you're awesome. Meta means to like look at a story from the outside of the story from the outside of the story. And if you don't understand, I'll give you an example of how this works. So Jesus gives us this event where he curses the fig tree and he drives them out of the temple and he talks about prayer for a while. And the point of the whole thing is you should know the word. But the only way to know that that's the point of the whole text is if you already knew the word in the first place. Because did you see how many times we went back to the Old Testament studying this text? back to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and the Psalms. And there were a bunch of other ones from Zechariah too that I didn't even quote today that help us understand this text. Here's the beautiful thing. God's word is still being preached to you. And so know it, hear it, humble yourselves before him, repent before him. And he will continue to give us his word. God grant it. Amen. Amen.